Wow, how did this boulder problem come about? Well, a lot of hard work in building a trail, gaining access. None of that's shown. We're not getting enough information that's correct. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am here at home in Lander, Wyoming, stuck deep into a training cycle and being a new dad for the second time, and hoping that most of you got outside somewhere for the Thanksgiving break and that the send conditions were perfect. Whether you executed or not, I have nothing to do with that. That's entirely up to you. Either way, though, I hope you learned some things. Before we jump into today's episode, I have to let you know that we're having a giant sale for the month of December. Our crag kits and boulder bags are at their lowest prices ever alongside finger files, finger care kits, apparel, hats, books, and more. We don't do this very often, so get in there before things are gone, and if you're buying something as a gift, do it ASAP because the post office during the Christmas season is slower than your everyday average off-width climber. And that's pretty damn slow. A couple of months ago at the Joe's Valley Festival, I sat down at the Emory County Rec Center and uh, the rodeo grounds at the park there with Stephen Jeffrey, a climber who has, whether you know it or not, had a hand in the way most of us currently experience climbing, several facets of it. While he's mostly known today as the unofficial mayor of Joe's Valley, what some of you newer climbers may not realize just yet is that Stephen was instrumental in the role of root setting in indoor climbing. He was on the podium at early climbing competitions. He helped usher in the eras of both bouldering and big macro gym holds. And when I hear the sound of a sloper being slapped just perfectly, which actually is one of my favorite sounds in the world with that snappy thwack of aggression and belief and rebellion, that is the sound of Stephen Jeffrey. Let's get into it. So these little grips that you're pulling out now, that one came from Todd Skinner's old Woody. Oh, man. I actually climbed on that 25 so, years ago. Directly off of that Woody. Nice. Yeah, my first trip to Lander, Iris ran into those guys and took us. we went and checked out his wall. Yeah. Climbed on it. That's awesome. You may have grabbed that hold 25 years ago. <laughs> I probably did. And then there's <sighs> another little granite chunk in there. Yeah. That came off of, theoretically, I have no proof, but I believe it came off of Dave Hume's home wall. Really? Yeah. I haven't talked to that guy in a long time. No, I haven't either, and I... Last time I talked to him, I sent him a photo of a bunch of these that I'd been told came off of his wall. And he was like, yeah, they could have. I, I can't say for sure, but they definitely could have come off my nice. wall. So, 
That's cool, man. And I know you competed with that guy way back, huh? Yeah, he pulverized us all. <laughs> <laughs> he was a quiet little monster, man. It was I, some random kid. That, no offense, looked kind of goofy to us. <laughs> and taught us a lesson that watch out for the goofy kids. That's, they're, they're, that's rock climbing now. Yeah, it was like, holy cow. He climbed so well. It wasn't that he was strong. It was just he climbed so well, right? Yeah. And so it was super awesome because it was like you can't underestimate anyone at that point in climbing. Yep. It was so fringe and everything was so new and everyone was going at it. It was like the weirdest looking character would show up and you'd be like, whatever, they're not a climber. And next thing you know, it's like, oh boy, like you're in trouble because you underestimated something pretty hard. Yeah, totally. I'll, I have this great memory of Dave from a comp in at climb time in Cincinnati and he he had already won by a mile yeah but the final boulder he he didn't do it and he was so excited to keep trying it like as soon as he would drop off he would just run back to the start <laughs> and try it again and try it again and try it again and time had ran out long before but he just was so excited to yeah. climb on this boulder you know yeah. and that stuck with me all these years was the excitement that kid it's brought. Because he never, it wasn't about the competition against others for him. It was about, he's a purist climber in a way. It was always about him and climbing what was in front of him. It wasn't about, oh, he, he didn't carry one. That was, in yeah. his mind, he lost. He didn't do it, right? So in his mind, he was probably still thinking, well, I didn't do it. So how did I win? You know, and that's like that purist climber thing that Dave Humes had forever. Yeah. Because it wasn't like, Oh, dude! I, well, I won. I'm just gonna stop. Well, in his, for sure, in his mind, no, I didn't do, I didn't do that climb. So, how can I say I won? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I think that's a an ethic that was kind of passed down through, you know, through the way people learned to climb back then. Like the gyms were really early, and I'm, I, you know, I want to establish some of your history before we get too deep into this thing. Yeah. You started in like late 80s, right? 89-ish, yeah. And what was the, I mean, there there couldn't have been much of a gym scene. So <laughs> did you learn outdoors? What did that look yeah. like? Yeah, Climbing gyms weren't, they, there wasn't a gym scene. It was all mentorships and outdoors. Yeah. So our climbing started as, as my older brothers, we we're skiers and we wanted to go skiing and ski the chute that you happen to have to rappel into. So we went and found someone that knows how to kind of rappel. And so we literally wrap a rope around a water aqueduct in a canyon and rappel. And then have to walk all the way back up around. And it was like, well, this walking around kind of sucks. Can't we just like climb back up and fully just rig it of guess you tie a knot like this. This eight ring auto, this eight ring rappel device will does this. So if you do it backwards, it should be safe. And just go for it. Like, fully just grinding a rope over a wood aqueduct. Like, there's no ink. And like, oh, this is kind of cool. Maybe we should start climbing. And then, then that's was like, oh, well, how do you do this? Well, everyone back in that day would talk about the Rockcraft book. Mm -hmm. And, oh, it was like taught you anchors. But, unfortunately, we were lucky that a gear shop in Salt Lake existed called IME. Mm. And the guys at IME were definitely... they're friends for lifetimes you know they still tell stories of 10 year old me and stuff like that which sometimes is embarrassing but it's what it is and then a co-op formed next door 
and that co-op formed the body shop and dave bell was an inspiration of indoor climbing could be something cool too mm. and so we had this garage an old car shop the body shop that's cool and then we climbed in this old garage as a co-op thing and it was a place i could access because i couldn't drive a car i was a kid but a you know the local uta bus would get me there and so i climbed in there on plastic so i kind of like the first plastic gym rat that's ever existed oh you know? wow because yeah. that was where more of my climbing came <clears throat> and then the mentorship to be outside was there because there were so few climbers and there was plenty of mentors and those guys just took you under their wing right because some of those guys i think got a little bit bent that i could do stuff in plastic they couldn't <laughs> and so they wanted to make sure that this kid was in check and will come to the real world and it it did it did put you in check it was like whoa okay this is really scary this is really hard and this is movements and stuff i don't understand and these guys just kind of wanted to make sure that they weren't getting beat down by some little kid on plastic yeah so it was kind of like this we'll take him out for entertainment and we'll see how it goes was was sport climbing a thing in salt lake at the time like was that when sport climbing was sort of really yeah. blowing up so sport climbing did start blowing up early 90s right after the whole smith rocks beginnings yeah. and stuff like that we started out trad climbing and I remember thinking about sport climbing for the first time going, wait, what is it? It's just bolted roots, and they're steep. And in my head, I'm imagining all the friction slabs of little cottonwood. They're right. 40-foot pitches with one, one bolt, 60-foot yep. pitch with two. And I was like, sport climbing sounds like the most dangerous, scary thing to an 11-year-old kid <laughs> ever. I was just like, I can't imagine this. And so we... Climb trad routes. It was fun. You just keep plugging in stoppers and go in. And then we were climbing 5.9. It was like, yeah, we're going to one day climb 5.10. And then we decided to go check out the sport climbing in the other canyon. And when we got there, it was total shock of like, wow, this is very unscary. Yeah. Immediately went from 5.9 trad to 5.11 sport routes in like a weekend. And it was like, wow, the sport climbing is different. It's safer in a mm -hmm. way. You felt so safe with it. I'm curious, you're like, one of the things that struck me about you when I first saw video of you climbing way back um, is that you kind of have this quiet demeanor until you pull on. And then you like become this embodiment of aggression when you're climbing. Where did that develop? Was it was it through the mentorship or was it something that you just brought on your own? It's, I call it flipping the switch. So coaching kids. So I coached Nathaniel Coleman for a while. And, yeah. we, and the coaching is not about the climbing part. It's about the mental and flipping the switch. And for me, when I was a kid, I was climbing around all these adults. And I always mm -hmm. felt like I had something to prove. Yeah. Always. It was like, I'm just this kid and I have something to prove. And so I learned to make every attempt count. Every attempt mattered because it was, well, I want to burn off Boone's speed, right? This is the world's greatest climber at this time. And I, he's standing right behind me and I want to burn him off. 
right? Because yeah. it was like, I want to show off. And so you'd learn to take this seriousness in every attempt, which was really great because it was like, oh, flip the switch, kill mode. But then my older brother was the one that kept me in line of mm. don't be a little shit, right? You can't be, you can't say something's easy that's offensive. And mm. I was I was always like, whatever, well, it is easy. And then <laughs> yeah. 30 years later, I feel bad for ever saying something was easy in climbing. Mm. But back then, I was just this little wiry kid that could hang on to anything. And it was like, oh, well, that's easy. And he'd be like, you can't say stuff like that. Mm. And so I learned to control both sides of, well, if I can't say it, I'll prove it. <laughs> sure. Right? So it was like, turn around, climb the climb, and prove that it's easy in a way. Not not to use your words. Yeah. And that carried on to that footage you're talking about in comp climbing. You know, I wanted everyone to know, like, hey, this is a fun thing. Comp climbing's a little bit weird. We're, we're, we're competing, but that's actually my friend next to me that I climb with. Uh, I don't want to think that we're trying to kill each other. We're actually all friends out here. And so I wanted to keep that atmosphere. But then when I turned around, it was like, it's, it's kill mode. It's, this is the goal. This is what needs to be done. I can get done 30 seconds, that's great. Then I can just chill f with everyone again, right? Yeah. And so that's well, set that you up well for like the the competition scene kind of coming into its own um, when you were right at the right age to be competing and right at the right you know level to be competing with with Chris and with Nels and with you know you were on the podium with these guys yeah. at a lot of these comps, and it seems like that flip the switch, kill mode, set you up really well for that. Yeah, and I learned that, and also I learned it is, believe it or not, I'm a chicken, and climbing's scary, and I didn't ever want to fall off anything. Mm. And so that focus really came from like, oh man, don't fall off, you know, this is scary. And I'm, I was genuinely scared in a lot of ways, too. So that mode of don't screw up became even more focused, because I was scared of Man, climbing's scary, right? No doubt. <laughs> and still scary as you grow older, and everyone will admit that taking the whipper or climbing that high problem, it takes a bit to get back to it, you know? People build back up to it. And a lot of people don't hear that, so they just think they go for it. And mm -hmm. so it's like, whoa. So that also was a part of, of a product of me truly being scared of climbing. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people don't give that fear enough credit. Yeah. You know, and it's the process of learning to feel the fear, recognize it, and then work your way through it. And it's just you and I might work through it in a few seconds and some a new climber might have to work through it over a series of days or whatever. Right, right. For me, it's years. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes. I can't work through it quickly. No, sometimes it's definitely like, Oh, I need to bring a top rope out here. I need yeah, to yeah, you know. have a bunch of friends to spot. I need, you know, whatever I can do to mitigate the danger so that I can lessen right. my fear and work through it. And then the danger, and then for in the comp scene too, so the old PCA days with all of our friends climbing, there was also a urgency of these people came to watch us, and mm. I would feel bad if we performed poorly. Me and Chris kind of shared this same feeling of that in these comps. It's like Sharma would show up and be like, oh, man, I don't feel very good. Um, when we get these nervous feelings of these people are, came to watch us, crap, we better not 
screw up, you yeah. know? And so that that's where all that switching comes from is, is like, I would feel really bad if someone drove all the way out here and I just stood on the ground because I couldn't do anything, you know? Totally. At that same time that the PCAs were blowing up was kind of this first big bouldering boom. Was there any, like, pushback in the Salt Lake climbing community for the bouldering boom kind of taking over from trad and sport climbing? So back in those days in Salt Lake, there wasn't, like, the climbing scene... Everyone respected everyone because everyone was a master at that craft, mm. right? So there was always people that you would see and you would just be like, you knew what they did last weekend. You knew they did that RX trad route. You know they're not a boulder. And so the mutual respect between the different styles of climbing from trad sport to bouldering was across the board. No one was in a hierarchy because those climbers at the time, like Boone Speeds, the Mike Calls, and Del... Del Goddard and those guys were climbing all the same too. They would boulder, right. they would trad climb, they'd sport climb, they'd do first ascents, and and there was like just mixed. It wasn't a mixed review, but it, it was an even playing field of each sport was each activity in our sport was the same level, and that time there was enough room for us all to grow. You know, the boulders mm-hmm. were over there, the trad routes were in this canyon, the sport climbing's in this canyon, and there was enough room to go around. And the old, old schoolers, you know, like, they they thought it was kind of cool. You know, we had some old legends. Our old Salt Lake City mayor was a climber, mm. Ted Wilson. And he, he established trad routes back in the late 60s, early 70s. Bold climber, became the Salt Lake City mayor for a while. And he still saw it as like, this is a cool evolution of the sport. I had no idea. It was, like, highlighted for me, though. Like, where where I was, there was a bit of a division between boulders, sport climbers, track climbers. But then Three Weeks in a Day came out. Oh, yeah. And and if anyone listening hasn't seen Three Weeks in a Day, I don't know if it's available online anywhere. Dude, I tried to hunt it down, like, a week ago. It's so good. Classic Mike Call film. I've got it on VHS still. I love it. (laughs) Um, but in that, they, they make the first trip that anybody else ever saw to Joe's Valley. Yeah. They also, when their RV breaks down, they find some crack climbs out in back of the, yeah, the shop yeah, yeah. And, and they're just climbing these crack climbs, you know, with gear. They brought gear with them on their yeah, trip. Yeah. And then they go to try to climb these new 514 right. sport routes in sport New Mexico. Climbing. And that was what climbing was back then. It was climbing. It wasn't broken down into categories so much. We were climbers going climbing. You go aid climbing, and then the next weekend you're out bouldering. And it was, like, totally normal. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, I was doing some scary aid. It terrified the crap out of me. Oh, now here I am bouldering on this boulder that's three feet off the ground, and I'm scared for some reason. You know, it was just yeah. climbing. How did you get involved in the, like, shaping, root-setting side of things? So, I was probably 19 years old, so early 90s, the Wasatch Front Rock Gym begins, and Rockcreation in Salt Lake City. The first kind of bigger gyms open pretty close together, and as someone that can't 
really drive a car, can't get anywhere. These gyms became places to go. Mm. And naturally, you just want to, oh, you start putting holds on. And you start, oh, oh I, you start creating movement in climbing gyms. Because back then, nothing was marked. It was just holds on walls. Right. And everyone just made up things and you just shared it. It was just a building with a bunch of spray walls. Right. Yeah. It's funny because climbing gyms are coming full circle almost yeah. nowadays. Like it went all the way from root setting. Now it's back to this, oh, these spray wall scenarios are really cool. And so that was just kind of how it was going. And then Dave Bell and Rob Gilbert out of Salt Lake start, well, climbing holds aren't, there's only these few holds, these holds we have here. And, yeah. And it's, it was kind of boring in a way. So... Rob Gilbert and Dave Bell decide, let's start a hold company. And that's when Pusher began. And when Pusher began, it was just as punk rock as it could get. You know, it was just literally they were all kids at the time. Everyone was kids and they were just like winging it. Mm -hmm. It was cool. So anyone could pick up a block of clay back then and foam wasn't even shaped at the time and make something. And it was like, put it in a mold. You know, it was just how it was. Because mm. anything was to be cool other than our current holds. Yeah, I've always sort of equated, like I, I'm pretty sure Mike shaped the boss. Is that right? Mike Call and uh, Mark Russo kind of work on the boss because they went on a font trip. Okay, and that yeah. was one of the first big like macro holds. Yeah. And even though Mike shaped it, I've always sort of equated it with you because of the like... <laughs> aggressive physical slappy style that we saw you climbing with and we saw you know mike's footage of you boone's photos of you and it all contributed to this like really aggressive punk rock sort of ethic right because believe it or not jumping around in climbing comps is new (laughs) for all you people seeing it now that's newish climbing was a very controlled movement back in the day it was about holding moves and doing moves and then it was almost dainty yeah 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 it was like oh but then the pca comp circuit comes around and it's this young like let's make this rowdy and then these big holds come around that there's nothing to hold on to so jumping and slapping became the thing because that was the only way we were going to hold on to these things and so it became this rowdy visual that everyone has gotten of like how in the world you know, did Chris jump to this thing and stick the side of it? He didn't even get on the hold. He right. didn't quite make it. And now he's holding on to nothing on the side of the hole. And then it just turns into this chaos. And I think that's where that came from. And it's these images of, I mean, I have good fond memories of the boss and winning comps because that damn thing was on the wall. Yeah. I turn around and be like, oh, thank God I can hang on to that hole at least. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and all the other little things that I could barely see on the wall, the cramps, I was like, oh boy. But if I get there, I could just hang out and everyone else was the opposite. They'd look up and be like, oh no, there's the boss. I'm dead. But me, it was like, oh, thank God I could shake out. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. I knew how well the whole suit suited me. And that was a style of climbing I really was after and I liked. I liked the aspect of grabbing something that wasn't there and trying to use it versus mm-hmm. digging my fingernails into something. Yeah, it's just something I, love I it. did. I'm I'm curious too. Like I've talked to a lot of youth competitors like in today's youth circuit that's really super high pressure and they're all like oh no, world cups are a cakewalk in comparison to youth comps. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm curious if that pressure or that like was there any 
did it get into your head competing with like Chris and Nels and Dave Hume? Was there any of that there? No, I didn't get like nervous or anything. I was honestly kind of maybe doing it to prove a point in a way that anyone can be here if they try hard, right? Because I came out of Salt Lake. My family wasn't well off in any way, but we weren't poor. It wasn't like we couldn't do things, but you had to go and do it yourself. You had to go make things happen. You couldn't just be like, hey, mom, dad, it was you had to do it. And I like to, I used it as to kind of prove a point. Like, I felt magazines and stuff would portray stories wrong, videos would portray the a sense wrong. It's like a skate flick. You watch that person rip out a line on their skateboard and you're like, yeah. oh man, that, that was like attempt 70, right. you know? And I saw the attempt 70 to do that, but then everyone's only seen the number one attempt. And it, it kind of bugged me because it was, I felt like people were getting false, false, you know, realities of what was happening out there. And so I like to go out there and be like, yeah, I worked 40 hours a week at the grocery store and beat them. And these guys are professional climbers i guess yeah. you know and i'm considered a professional climber too but not really and that's i got in lots of binds as a professional climber or sponsored climber because i would didn't mind calling them out that well you just gave me a pair of shoes you know i can go work at mcdonald's and buy a pair of shoes faster than calling <laughs> on the phone and right. begging you yeah. you know like why would i keep begging and so i i never felt a pressure of it it was more for me it was more of to prove the point of anyone can be here if you want to be here. I never worried about winning or losing. It probably what kept me always on podiums because it's like, whatever, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. How did the, like, back in the back in those days, the gyms were like, you know, trade, trade a membership for setting. Or, <laughs> yeah, a lot of that. You know, whoever comes in can just set whatever they want, you know. Right. How did you start trending toward route setting more professionally, more more as a career, and for big comps? So, obviously, you know, you're getting weaker, I guess, or comps are getting harder, and you need to do something, right? A lot of these guys just thought this would last forever. And for some, it's lasted a little bit. Well, for one. Chris is definitely, <laughs> for one, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so a lot of us realized quickly, like, oh, what are we going to do? And so for me, it was like, I need a job. And climbing has been my whole life, and I love it. What, what am I going to do? And so it was pretty like, oh, well, there's this evolution coming of climbing gyms. So you master movement out of fear because you don't want to fall off. So magically, you're a master of all climbing movement. Magically. And then next thing you know, it's you can translate that onto this artificial wall. Mm. And then you can become a, this skillful root setter of movement, right? And I was, God, I was probably only 15 years old. Recreation was hosting a qualifying round for a snowbird comp up at the Snowbird Cliff Lodge. And the finals round was happening in the Cliff Lodge, and it snows. Mm. And they were in this panic mode. So they hurry and put the finals route in Rockeration's gym and they throw down the finals and Scott Franklin wins the classic days of that. And I watched all that and I was like, wow. And then the climbing gym was empty. There was no holds, no nothing. 
and I was sitting there, and everyone's burnt out from mad chaos of trying to put up. And I was like, well, I can put up roots. And I set these roots as a 15-year-old kid. Mm. And people climbed them, and they were like, wow, this is really good root setting, and this is really fun. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And so I got into that root setting thing really young, luckily, by you trade a membership to root set. Yeah. And then people started seeing and realizing, wow, this is wow, the climbing gym's really busy all of a sudden and all these people are climbing these routes and they talk about them. And that's how it kind of transferred into that. But at that point, climbing gyms still weren't a big thing out there. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while longer. When the gyms did start blowing up, were you excited to move into that? Or were you a little nervous about the idea of it blowing up? I was hesitant for sure. So I was... Managing freight crews at grocery stores, working graveyards for like seven years, and then just climbing every day. And then a large gym brand was starting in Salt Lake, and it was Momentum was, we're going to build this big, huge climbing gym in this, you know, commercial real estate place. It was kind of like, there's no way you're going to do this. Right. Sure, whatever. But as as I was driving from my home to American Fork, you drive right past where they're building it. And every weekend you're like, wow, it's a little bit, whoa, they cut the roof off. Wow, oh, there's a hole. And you're kind of like, whoa, they're they're doing this. Mm. And so I randomly was just like, well, I'll just stop in, you know, check it out. I was actually planning on leaving Utah at that time because I felt I'd climbed everything. And I was going to move with the grocery company because they're a massive company. I could go work anywhere. and But I decided to go in and look. And I went in and looked. And randomly, this guy, Big D, Demeter from Waltopia at the time, I knew him from random other things. And he's in this building, and he's like, whoa. And we're like, wow, what are you doing? And he showed me everything they're doing. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And at that point, the gym was thinking about how they were going to start selling memberships. What, what, was their, what was their angle to convince people you need indoor climbing and outdoor climbing? And it just happened that me standing in the building really helped them out. Because people were coming and peeking around were like, well, what's Steven doing here? Does he work here? Mm. Like, is he going to be a part of this gym? Because when we lost the Wasatch Front, it really, that gym, when that gym was lost, it really, a lot of people were, didn't know where to, they felt lost with their climbing gyms. They didn't sure. know what to do. They never felt a home. It's not like today where there's seven other gyms in town. Right. <laughs> and so I, they asked me what I, my plans were and I said, this is my plans. And they thought, Momentum thought they could change them, and they did. They changed that plan for me. Cool. Put me on that path. Well, fast forward, and you know, and maybe not even fast forwarding that much because you had little cottonwood there, but you're developing bouldering outside. Right. Um, do you see any parallels between the mindset of root setting and the mindset of developing? Right. Yeah, you do. So. Root set, climbing gyms, and I was like, man, these moves are cool. I want to find them outside. Because <laughs> I can manufacture any type of root on plastic and in a gym, and this moves, oh, man, this moves sick, and you want to go find it. And so finding bowler problems became a thing, right? It was like, oh, I got to go find it. And so you wanted to do these first ascents. But then at that time, too, first ascents were kind of king, you know? Yeah. It was like, oh, you repeated that. Oh, you repeated so-and-so's. Yeah, you repeated, repeated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you did what? 
it's like, oh, I did this new line. And so that kind of became cool to me too, because is these lines possible? Just how any first ascensionist is. It's like, everyone, is it climbable? Is it not climbable? And the root setting helps with that because your movement you're trying to create, you have to do that with the first ascent. It's like you're looking at something that's relatively blank and granite, and it's mm. like, and then two days later, you're like, oh, crap, it's only V5, <laughs> right? It's this puzzling game that you learn where people thought something was impossible, and here you are. Oh, it's not that bad, actually. Yeah. I've heard several people talk about you, like, showing them some things that you've cleaned up and built landings for uh, and just handing it over and just being like, hey, you climb on this. Right. You know? At what point do you think the I have to get the first ascent dissipated? Um, f- for me, it, it disappeared when I just realized it didn't matter. You know, like... Yeah. The reason why I got the first ascent is I was the first one to find it. Right. I was the first one that walked out here. Any, someone else could have done that. So the first ascent kind of disappeared for me because of that. It was like, well... You were just the first one out there. And what changed for me was is Adam Andra actually changed that. Mm. Andra was so competitive about beating records. Well, how fast did that guy do it? How many tries did that take? And to me, it was like, you know what? He's actually right. There's only one aspect in climbing that matters on any climb anywhere is first try. We all only get one first try. And if you don't do it first try, it's over. So. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a first ascent, 100 billionth ascent, it's first try. Because yeah. all of us get that. No one else can take it away or anything. It's so when that came about to me, it was like, oh, well, that's all mattered to me too in a way. I, a long time ago, it was like, oh, yeah, I can try a boulder problem 10,000 times and do it. Well, that's cool, but that person did it in four tries. It's like, mm. whoa, it took me four days and so that's when the first ascent lure disappeared for me because I would do a first ascent and be like, yeah, I just did this boat row. It took me five days. Yeah, and I show it to my friend. He does not four tries. I'm like, oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> I sort of have like had the same uh, evolution in my thinking where I used to really care about being the first to do a thing. Uh, and then I just realized that it's exactly the same challenge for me, whether I was right. the first or the 150th. You right. know, or the 10,000th. Right. doesn't really matter. It's still the same challenge. Same challenge, but what's impressive is is that person did it first try yeah. and you didn't. <laughs> how, how hard did I try? You it know, doesn't do matter if it's the V1 slab you fell off of or the V10 you flashed. It's like first try. Yeah. And so that's where that first ascent full lure disappeared a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get old. <laughs> you you, you know it's doable because you've done things. And there's no way in hell you're doing it, so you might as well fix it up and let someone else do it because you know you're not doing that thing. Totally. I find a lot of joy in, like, cleaning things and and making sure the landing is good and, and then showing it to other people. Right. You know, even if I haven't done the thing yet. Right. For me, I do that to... It's, for me, it's changed in a way of the first ascent or an area is... Since there's the masses we see nowadays, I'm starting to see it more as preserving what was there in a lot of ways. I see it as, as yeah, I was the first one that found it, 
big deal. But I want it to kind of stay in this state. Make it sustainable. And make it sustainable because, you know, you find this amazing boulder problem or you bolt this root and you're just like, holy cow, I want it to stay in this state how I found it. So how do I, what can I do to preserve this state? And that, yeah. that became really important to me. And that's how the whole Joe's Valley of everything came about for me was seeing things change. And it was kind of painful to see the change. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really interesting part of your story. Like you, you came in with this like punk rock, fuck the system kind of <laughs> attitude, you know. Maybe a little too much of <laughs> fuck everyone <laughs> attitude. Why? Well, you know, you mentioned that you started climbing around 1989, and I looked up some of the music that came out around 88, 89. Bad Religion was um, it. Bad Religion had come out. <laughs> NWA had come out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Ice-T released Power. Um, there were all these um, Public Enemy release It Takes Nation Millions to Hold Us Back. All these fuck the system right. attitudes were were pervasive in like popular culture at least for like the the young people who were looking for that you right know? right but then somehow you went from bad religion to <laughs> i'm gonna join a trash cleanup in orangeville utah what? There's a few phases between there. I had a Katy Perry phase, you know? There, there was, was no Katy Perry in there. There was Come phases. There's phases I went through to get through there, right? You know, it was it wasn't a night and day switch, but it was drastic for my thirty years climbing, you know. It was a two year period of just like, wait a minute, this these things need to change. Yeah. And that big wave change came with the outdoor outdoor climbing and the indoor climbing industry. I was in the indoor industry heavy for many years and watching how that industry was just exploding. And eventually these people are going to go where we all want to go, you know? So it was this very concerning thing that I saw building. Just like being a scared climber, you're always four or five moves ahead because there better be a jug there to clip that damn draw Mm because I'm so scared. So you, you develop this always looking ahead of what's coming and seeing that in the gym industry was quite scary because mm. I know how much fun rock climbing is outside. We all do, but this new breed of climber learning from these gyms don't yet. And when they do, what in the world are we going to do? What's going to happen? And so I took, in the 30 years climbing, there was a time where I took a good, serious four years and didn't climb a ton. You know, I was just. You know, you finally find fall out of the romance of it. Yeah. You still love it, but yep. that romance period, you, you know, and and that time frame was when the big gym booms are going. Everything's going, right? And then I go back and visit Joe's, and you could see it, plain as day. It's like these starting holds are three feet higher off the ground just right. from erosion. That tree's dead. That tree's dead. That tree's dead. There was a bush there. There was this there. And you're just kind of like, whoa, it changed so quickly to where it was like, well, who's going to do something? Like, who's going to say something or who's... And I just stood there and I was like, well, why does it have to be someone? I can do it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm standing here. Why don't I do it? Why don't I help make this sustainable slash everyone else can kind of understand it, right? Yeah, well, we're, we're sitting here now during 
Joe's Valley Fest. And in the last few weeks, we've watched, you know, through some of your posts, some posts from uh, climbers in Salt Lake, that two areas that are near and dear to you, right. Little Cottonwood Canyon and Joe's Valley, a bunch of things around the V7 level have been chipped. Right. It's, I know how you feel about it, but I, I want to talk about it. So No, it is. So, in our history of climbing, chipping, manufacturing was some sort of thing. But it was always the first ascensionist, right? It wasn't yeah. an established thing. So that's when the beginning of manufacturing and chipping was kind of like, well, this is kind of weird. But no one had ever climbed it before. And then... If some of you remember in Fontainebleau about 15 years ago, someone very disgruntled with the Fontainebleau forest and all the climbers of Fontainebleau, the local legends, decided to take a hammer and destroy classic boulder problems. Yeah. Full malicious attempt. Like, it was all malicious. I want to get back at these people. So then it goes on further to where those things were explainable to me in my head. I could justify being really angry and taking away something. I mean, that's how all anger, aggressions, and bad things... Someone is just angry and they need to take something because they just want to replace whatever their void was created. Mm. So we get out to this point, and those things, yeah. But a couple weeks ago, in Joe's, we did a little mini trail maintenance on a boulder problem that I would climbed over 20 years ago. And the hole is enhanced with a half inch chisel and i sat there and stared at it and it was a weird experience i won't lie it was this weird like first experience was like huh and then it was like holy shit and then it was like mother goddamn fucker and then it was like well this is bs and then i started grasp going through the whole wave of like well why what why yeah and then I literally sat there for a while just staring at it. And then I tried the problem once, and then I was like, I'm, I'm not going to climb it anymore. You know, it's it, it's a different state in a way. It was just kind of like, this is not, what is it? And so then it took me a while to just really start processing why. Mm-hmm. Like, what would why would I do it? So I just really put myself in the position of like, why would I... Did I fail at something I thought I should be able to do? And it was, and it's still today, I'm still just like, what in the world? Like, how do I cope or deal with it? And yeah. as you go through it, it's like, huh, this is not my favorite thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. Well, just to connect some dots here and clarify, um, because we sort of skipped right over it. Um, the ethic used to be many years ago that some first ascensionists would modify things to make them doable. Right. That has since been heavily frowned upon. So right. um, that's not even the case anymore. Um, but especially things that have already been established, you don't change the holds. Right, right. Um, one of the things that struck me about the photos you posted because I did the same thing. I'm like, why would someone do this? Right, right. Um, several of the holds that have been chipped, 
there was no chalk in the chip area at right. all. So it didn't look like they had chipped it and then climbed it. It looked like they had just chipped it and moved on. Right. So, so as time goes on, we find out more and more and more. You know, you start actually narrowing down who who's doing it through that kind of stuff. So that's what was puzzling about it. But the way it worked out here in Joe's was the holds were chipped. They're enhanced to be climbed. And then the person tried to cover it up a little bit. And so they just shove a bunch of dirt back in there. And mm. and then the idea is, well, someone will come along and brush it and maybe it'll get bigger, right? Because sandstone, it's soft. Right. But the way the sandstone works in Joe's Valley is, is you break that first varnish layer off. Yep. That chalk doesn't actually stick to that varnish layer uh. after, underneath. The chalk won't stick to it for a while until all of our over-human traffic juices get all over that hold and then it gets caked back up with that. So Got that's why it. it looks it looks like that in our in these photos because when you break off that layer, it's as fresh as stone gets, and so there it's plain as day. And so the person that was like, "Oh well, God, that scar looks really bad," because if you take off that varnish layer, well, I'll hurry and climb it here, put up my send video or whatever their idea is, and then I'll just pack a little dirt in there and take off. So that's why it's taking time to actually figure out all the climbs that have been enhanced sure. around here because we haven't gone and climbed them because climbing season starts this weekend. Yeah. I, I just read an article that sort of put the blame on indoor climbing. Right. And I'm a little, you know, in some ways I agree with that sentiment and in some ways I'm really skeptical of that sentiment. What are your thoughts on it? Being someone who's entrenched in the indoor world <laughs> right. the way you are. Right. And you and I are both people who have helped to increase the popularity of climbing. Right. So do you feel like there's any, like we hold some of the fault as well? Oh, no. Yeah. It's that whole, we all want to put blame on something that we don't understand. That's our first human reaction is, is I don't understand this makes me feel dumb figure out to blame it to get this reaction out of my bad make me feel good quick yeah. let's make myself feel good quick and that's that's easy for us to all fall into so it's easy to be like blame the climbing gym okay blame the climbing gym or oh blame this blame that blame social media because everyone has to portray themselves as something right yeah blame it it's everything it's everyone it's all of them you can't just pinpoint one that's the stupidest you might as well just try the same beta on the move 5,000 times the same way. As climbers, we change it and yeah. we break down what it is. So that's what I kind of how I did to myself. Because, yeah, in the climbing gym industry, I see people brand new walking to the gym. And two years later, they're my climbing partner climbing the same projects I am. And mm -hmm. it's like, God, it took me 30 years to get here. And you're, right. you're the little torp standing right next to me climbing something that I'm really having a hard time with, you know? And that fast turnaround of a climber from the gym is something easy to blame in a way. But then you go back to me and you as these mentors and creators and helping, well, what have we done to help educate people? What right. have I done? You have your podcast and people can listen and be it. Me, what have I done? I haven't done anything. I'm in Castledale hiding. I'm not out saying or doing anything. So, 
there's I can't blame someone. I can't, you know, I can't. I, I should be blaming myself too, right? Because it's like how to pinpoint it. But I, I'm okay personally saying the climbing industry has a huge indoor climbing industry has a huge problem with it. Mm. I am totally fine with you know calling that industry out. When we go into your gyms, you go into your local gym, and when you go in there, walk around and look. Look if there's any sort of education, simple flyer just to say, hey, just so you know, our climbing gym is catering to you for customer experience. Yeah. Outside, it can give a shit what you think. Yeah. V5 is V5, you know. This climbing area's grades are like this. Other climbing area grades are like this. Grades are to that area. The idea of what's dangerous, a highball in Bishop is a high, high ball in Joe's Valley. <laughs> right? It's Yeah, it's a root everywhere it's a, else. Right. So <laughs> we learn as rock climbers, these places have that, right? Yeah. Gyms don't. Gyms are, you know, they have pretty, they don't have regulations quite yet on how high their walls can be or but they all kind of follow this guideline of providing a good customer service. They're not there to scare the crap out of you. That's why there's 10 million quick draws on your wall, top ropes hanging, and padding that no human could carry by themselves to a boulder. Yeah. So it's this customer experience they're creating for you and not explaining that when you go outside. Yeah. So in these... New climbers get really, really strong, really, really fast, and send your project next to you and become your friend. Don't have that. They go out on their own, and they go for it. And they're really, really strong, and they can get into danger really, really fast. And they can be quick to be like, well, I'm really, really strong. This boulder problem should be easier. Yeah. And so that factor could come into play. I can see how it can come into play really, really quick. Yeah, you can get... You can catch a beat down way faster outside than you can in the gym. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you want a good Your humbling. ego can get crushed. If you want a good humbling, go climb in an area in the worst heat conditions imaginable. Yeah. And then you'll just be like, yeah, I get it. But us as climbers, the old school, we understand that because we've gone through it because that's where we started and that's where it was. And so that you can blame that gym industry. And then I... I mean, I have social media. I have an Instagram, but I only allow 5,000 people to follow. So if you're trying to follow now, sorry, you have to wait for someone to leave. <laughs> it's just a weird thing I did because it's funny to me. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, well, 5,000 is the limit. I don't know why I put it that, and but that's just me being weird, and I don't care. So social media, the more I deal and see with that, I see that, wow, this is an issue in a way we as humans somehow need gratification of a like from someone taking a crap in the woods you know wherever they're staring at their phone we need this gratification of oh someone's someone's proud of me or something in a way and so you can see how someone could get a little bit down on themselves that they can't do these things and wanting to be like let me enhance it you know you know, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone will be proud because they can all climb it too. You, mm. you, can, you can fall into that trend of like, well, when I just make this hole a little bigger, as a root setter, it's even more dangerous because it's like, I know if I put a foothold there, right. the clientele will love this boulder problem. 
if I don't put that foothold on there, I'm going to hear about it for weeks that I set a crappy route. Mm-hmm. So as you as a person, you can see how easy it is to fall into these traps. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a common thing that you hear in the gym is like, oh, this is just a bad boulder problem. Right. Or this is just awkward. Right. Um, I don't know that I ever heard that outside before the like... <laughs> Jim was the the gym scene was starting to boom because you just accepted what was there and learned to fit yourself around it in some right. way. Right. Instead of just I just add another red foothold right there. Yeah. And then now it's fixed, you know. That's where it's that spoon feeding of the indoor climber is really worrisome for the outdoors. Yeah, we talk a lot on here about like the things that climbers can do individually to make sure that that spoon feeding doesn't impact them negatively when they go outside. Um, But there are other things we could do, you know. Um, Lana and I have talked about creating sort of ethics um, courses that get sent to everyone who also buys our, like, beginner programs. Right. um, To help them learn what going outside means. Uh, Things from you know, not chipping all the way to how to get in line for a route, <laughs> right, you know? Right. Like, How does the queue work here? Yeah, exactly. Right. Where to unpack your stuff, you know? Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, it's it's getting there, and the, the problem why it's slow is information. You know, our current state of the world is we thought if we had all the information, we'd be, everything would be solved. Mm. We'd be smart. And now we carry these damn devices in our pockets that just make everyone think they're a genius. Yeah. And it's like, okay, genius, you know. If you have so much information in there, why can't this work? And it's a disinformation age. Mm. We're all seeing this as we look in our phone, and I just watched someone climb this really hard boulder problem. Oh, my God, this is amazing. But that was 900th attempt. Right. That was, oh, or, or... Wow, how did this boulder problem come about? Well, a lot of hard work in building a trail, gaining access. None of that's shown. We're not getting enough information that's correct. And so in this disinformation age with that, that's our problem. It's like, oh, well, okay. This is, I learned just enough to think I'm smart. And that's the dangerous human, right? And so these climbers are going out there. Well, well, he kind of knows enough or he... Or she's the she's been here before, but yep. kind of, and then we're we're com we're compounding this disinformation more and more and more, and it's growing and growing and growing. Instead sure. of this is actually the ethic, this is how you get in queue for a boulder problem, you know? Because surfers will tell you real fast; they just punch you in the face. Right, right. Surfers aren't going to wait. Next thing you know, you're punched in the face and you're drowning, and you're like. I guess I was out of the queue. <laughs> yep. Climbers are a lot more friendly about it, which is cool. Well, one of our, like, historically, one of our best sources of, especially local information, has been guidebooks. Right. You know, you're going to an area, you buy the guidebook, you learn what the local ethics are, you learn your way around, where the private property is versus the public property. Right. What you can and can't do, sort of. And... I think now with the like proliferation of Mountain Project and online um, information about here's where this boulder is, go try it. Right. I think some of that is getting lost. And, For sure. 
you you just released your Joe's guidebook, which is a long time in the making. <laughs> yeah. Um on the Kaya app. Right. With the chipping that just happened, how are you feeling about having that guidebook out there on an app? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Right. So people that know me know I just will say whatever the hell I want and that's fine. And I'm totally fine with that. And I'm fine with myself and how I feel about things. When I've been working with Kaya for a while with an old friend, Dave German. You know, it was, yeah, let's make this guidebook. But the second I found the chipping, the first reaction was, fuck everyone. Why the fuck would I share this? Why would I care where all this stuff is? Why would I give someone the golden ticket to destroy everything? Mm. And the honest opinion of why I didn't release my book in the beginning was Joe's Valley was in the transition of local and climber. And my thought was, why would I put a book in the food ranch? And the first thing we talk about is the fragileness of amazing classics from rain. And a local read it and go, well, I know how to get rid of rock climbers. And uh. take a hammer and go smash every hold off. Mm. So it exactly happened what I didn't want. I was, I was, it was like, holy shit, did I just manifest this whole nightmare for myself by not releasing it 15, 10 years ago? Because my fear was a local with a treasure map of gold to get rid of us. You know, now the treasure map of gold is like, oh, well, don't have to worry about a local, you know. I'm about to worry about someone that's ego can't handle the grade and needs to enhance it. So it was, it's painful in some ways, right? Yeah. But I see it doing the guidebook with the Kaya app. I teamed up with the apps... Because, for one, I'm not going to say me and you are old. But well, but we are. We're older. We're, we're relics, and or at least approaching relics. Staring status. at our phone is kind of alien to us. It's a little bit weird. I'm getting it's, better at it. It gives though. me a headache. When <laughs> it's like, why am I looking at this weird device that just pisses me off all the time? Yeah. And anytime something comes in on it, I'm angry. You know, it's like, oh, why would I want to look at this more? You know, it was kind of this, well, what do I do? But the future of everything is, is if you think about it you know it's helpful we're not cutting down a bunch of trees to make a book in some way there's good aspects to it and then there's the old man headache aspect to it when i stare at it right but these i chose to do the app because i don't want it's easy for us to crowdsource things it's easy for us as humans to geotag things it's easy anyone can put a video up anywhere of anything and so i chose to do it this way because I set it up that the authors of these apps on Kaya, they control and own their guidebook still. They're not just some off-blind admin that's, oh, I think it does this. I kind of stole the information from this site, and I asked my buddy over here, and she told me this about this boulder problem. You know, it, it, yeah, I didn't want this half-baked, crowdsourced things. I wanted yeah. it to be a, authentic to where it's the guidebook author's voice. They can explain the boulder problem how they wish. They can put way better history of all the climbing in there. And when these apps can keep growing, you, you, you're you unlimited space. It's the, the cloud of the internet. Whoever knows how far that's going to keep going. And you can just yeah. keep shoving info in there. And sure, someone probably won't read the 
five-page novel of why it's called Trent's Mom, but someone might and think it's the most hilarious thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. And and so you can do that in your book, and you're not taking up pages and paper. And it's instant. I can, we can modify anything. So if something's changed, access has changed somewhere. You can just be like, yo, hey, not just new gym climber, but hey, everyone, you know, I've been climbing for 20 years. Why can't I come here anymore? That guy is going to do that. I've been climbing on this cliff for 30 years. No one can tell me I can't. It's like, well, technically it became a nesting area for birds and it's actually really bad if you climb here and then that person just goes for it and next thing you know your cliff's closed yeah because the guidebook didn't say that because it's out of print so all that is why i really pushed to do that i'll still do a print version that everyone can have and write in it and all that stuff but i really pushed because it's going to happen without us yeah so all us guidebook authors and anyone out there you're going to get left in the dust because this will take over, and but so why not help it and it'll grow it in a way together versus just what one rando thinks of a boulder problem and puts it on Mountain Project. Yeah, well, I th- you know, I think that sort of evolution is a survival technique, you know, for us relics. Yeah. But it's also, you know, I think guidebooks are a survival mechanism for climbing too. Mm-hmm. A lot of the old school idea is that if you build it, they will come. You know, right. you, you put the guidebook out, you're inviting all these people. But now it's so easy to find that information online. They're going to come anyway. Right. And they're not going to know, you know, especially in a, an area like Joe's Valley where we need to um, keep this relationship with the locals in a good place. Mm-hmm they're not going to know anything about the surrounding area. They're not going to know where to park when they're on that, yeah, that narrow, canyon, narrow road. canyon road, you know. They're not going to know which trails to take. And Joe's is a confusing-ass place, oh, you yeah. know. So it's very easy, even with a guidebook, to get lost. So yeah, yeah. without one and just knowing, oh, there's a boulder up there somewhere. Yeah, I have a GPS coordinates. Walk straight. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So right. I personally think guidebooks do a good service and having them evolve is a natural step. Yeah. And we have to, you know, it's just like climbing, you know, we have to evolve to to try to climb harder. These people climbing these giant mountains, speed mountaineering, that stuff, you know, they're evolving in these crazy ways and everyone needs to understand that you have to evolve yourself or if not, what just, you might as well just sit on your couch and eat potato chips and watch wheel of fortune every day, which isn't such a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's good that there's some mitigation of control, fear and all that kind of stuff. But the guidebook things are important and I kind of see it as I can use this app and help provide information faster and not be the old curmudgeon guy at the boulder just yelling at people, expecting it to happen that way. Yeah. Right? My guidebook's not going to yell at you and say, oh, but it's information that someone can get. And then I don't have to be out there and go, holy shit, is this, what is this, does this person really think this is like normal out mm-hmm. here or okay? But I can't get pissed because what the hell do they know? They probably at their house. Their house is probably sheer chaos in their apartment. There's probably shit everywhere. And they're just used to that. But when they come outside, it's like, well, you know, it's like, wow. And so it helps prevent 
me being angry, you know. In Joe's, we have a lot of good sayings about seasons around here and stuff. So I like to say, you know, it's springtime in Joe's Valley because all the license plates turn green and the tick marks start growing. (laughs) And that is 100% true of Joe's Valley. (laughs) If you're here in that season, if you're here in that season, Colorado just shows up and plates are green, tick marks grow. It's just... yeah. Same thing there's, happens in Wyoming. Right. There's no way I can deny that. You know, I can't deny that. But you know what? That's just kind of like, oh, well, their boulders are that way. And it is because when I troll the internet, because I'm a troll, watch out, I troll all of you. <laughs> I look and watch and I watch these videos. And I'm like, man, if you can't tell where that handhold is, you just obviously the boulder problem's above you. Like if you can't muscle memory these things and you can't do this, you, you know, it, it's the point where I was kind of bagging on some Colorado ones, I think, or just some randos at Smoking Joe, and we're up here in Joe's, and this dude has this tick mark that, I mean, I didn't, I was unexplainable tick mark. It looked like art to me for a minute, (laughs) and I was just kind of like, huh, and I proceeded to brush it away without saying anything, and I'm the bad guy all of a sudden, and I was like, yeah, this will be funny. Oh, I'm the bad guy. I'll just brush it away here, and I'm like, oh, yeah, i Hike the boulder problem once, hike it twice. As I'm doing it, I'm completely muscle memorying this boulder problem. And then I look at them all and I take my hoodie, tie it around my eyes and climb it blindfolded mm. and said, you should probably do more art. You might climb it. I climb the thing completely blind. And it's like, if this is how you have to do the boulder problem, it might be above you. Maybe work towards that better you know it's like what in the hell is going on here mm-hmm. an old man did it blindfolded well steven it wasn't red and obvious yeah it's not glowing on a kilter board or all those training <laughs> boards it's yeah but it's just here with with the guidebook coming and guidebooks going that information could be used but then what's also important is is with the guidebook it helps give everyone else a voice not just me being a gatekeeper. It's not me going out there and saying, what, what the hell's wrong with your dog? What, what's, you know, it's everyone has this information of, a, of this is the general rules that we go with for this area. You know, because every area is different. There's invasive species of plants. People don't know this in Joe's, but the juniper tree is invasive. Mm. When I worked with the Forest Service... It's terrifying. He whips out his chainsaw and gets this smile on his face and just starts mowing them down. And you're just like, no, 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 that's providing shade. And they're just like, it's an invasive species. None of us climbers know that because if you go over into Tahoe and you touch a juniper, you're you're going to jail, right? And so these guidebooks are important to create this info so then when we're all out there and someone's new or someone's never been there, we always do that. We go up to someone... Hey, have you climbed here before? Oh, yeah, yeah, I climbed here, this, this. Oh, this problem's great. Uh, That's a standard exchange of climber in a lot of ways. But now that standard exchange is, oh, by by the way, it rained yesterday. Maybe wait till this evening to climb. Or, oh, hey, by the way, you you actually don't park in this canyon. Or you don't, you know, this this canyon's a ranch road and there's ranchers. Or you go out to cliffs and it's like, well, we don't leave our draws hanging on these cliffs because, you know, like... That's what's important with these future of developing a guidebook, not just to give the guidebook author the voice to be this gatekeeper. Everyone that's 
Reddit that owns it can be the gatekeeper. Yeah, and you know, you're going to have your opinions, I'm going to have my opinions, everyone right. else is too. But really what's at stake with a lot of this information is the climbing area itself. Right. Like we're we're trying to make sure we retain access and a good relationship with the locals and that's what's at stake. Yeah. You know, so because if you really take your climbing area and break it down. So I one thing I did to really help us in the climbing community of Joe's Valley is, is I'm on the trails build committee with the county. I sit on a board every month we meet. So it's all of us, Forest Service, BLM, it's OHV people, it's horse pe- it's all of us are in a room once a month talking about the future of Emory County's trails and visitation and how we how we manage and mitigate everything. And so when you start working with those agencies, that's what you really learn. Like you're just, you're, you're not even on their map. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you set their map down and look at it, there's white, there's green, there's, and that's that land and that's who manages it. And that's that, that, that's that. Your climbing area can be on this and you think you as the climber own it. Yeah, you're the most important thing there. You're far, far from it. And so if you're looking to better your climbing area, because a lot of people ask me, well, oh, you did all these amazing things for Joe's Valley. It's like, no, no, I didn't. A bunch of people did. It just, unfortunately, the real rock kind of portrays that I'm some sort of whatever of Joe's. And it's like, well, no, no. I honestly, when I watch that real rock, it kind of disturbs me a little bit in a way because... There was so many other people involved to make that happen. It wasn't just the weird-haired guy that climbs out here. It's not that. It was, and so it kind of bugs me a little when I've I've only watched it twice, honestly, because it kind of bugs me. Because so many people are involved, so all these people always ask, "Well, how do I make? What did you do?" And it's like, well, the simple things. You get as many people involved that has the say of that piece of property, that land, that area, and you work together to make it best so as climbers you need to prove why you're there like the bishop they their their coalition's going well they're getting it they're understanding and you need to prove to the city of bishop and la water and all those people that you're an economic driver for bishop it's just not a gas town to mammoth anymore there's people coming to bishop not just to fish that river right that river there that, that's sad though oh man it's good <laughs> if you're like a v15 steven's, steven's new love if you're a V15 fly fisherman, that river is, the Owens through there is world class, right? But climbers need, a, it's obviously the climber cars outnumber those fishing cars, right? Right. And so the climbing communities are understanding, oh, we need to prove you're an economic driver and your skin is in the game to protect their land as well. It's like, hey, we're here to take care of your land because that land manager, when you meet them, they're pretty exhausted humans. They're like, whoa, I have thousands and thousands of acres I have to watch over. And I'm have to worry about now these weird crash pad people. Oh, it's like, holy cow, now what? But the climber is there and you guys are proving your point of we're here to enjoy the land too, plus protect it. It goes really, really well. Yeah. I mean, when I started climbing... I really didn't care about the environment at all. You know, right. I was coming from a skateboarding background. Oh, I was man. like, pour cement on everything, you yeah. know, skate everywhere. 
but because it's the it's like the apparatus that I you know play on mm -hmm. out there you sort of have to start to care about it right um I I, I want to make sure we don't totally come off as like old and crusty <laughs> I mean we're gonna be 95% regardless um what are you loving about climbing right now? You've been in this game for a long time. Yeah. You've seen it from a lot of different perspectives. What are you loving about it? I mean, there's been moments where I've just been like, you know what, all you people fucking go away. <laughs> this is not what you're loving, Steve. Right, you know what I mean? And I kind of loved <laughs> feeling that and saying that, yeah. you know? I kind of was like, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. You know, kind of like... The unofficial mayor troll of <laughs> of Emory County. Right. But then it, I started realizing and you start seeing, like, <clears throat> you remember the time when you and your friends climbed that polar problem for the first time. You yeah. remember the how excited we all were and the fear and the game. And, and you step back and you watch people do that again and again and again every day. You sit under this polar problem and you're like... That's exactly how me and my friends, we said the same things. Yeah. We fell at the same point and thought we were peeing our pants. We, we, and you're watching it, and this is 20 years later. Yeah. And they didn't see a video of me doing it. They didn't this see. This is 30 years later, Stephen. 30 years. <laughs> Actually, yes, 20 something. 20 something. <laughs> but they're experiencing what mm -hmm. we did 30 years ago. And there was no book written about what we did. They weren't copying anything we were doing. Yeah. They were just doing what we did. And it was, that is awesome to see. That is what makes me go, you know what? Climbing is pretty bloody rad. Because here they are experiencing the exact same thing. Yeah. And it's in the same state. 30, it's, it's, the foothold might be a little greasier. It might be a little more chalk. The landing might be a little better or worse, but it's the same experience they're having yeah. as that new climber. And that's what really makes me happy about going out there and climbing with everyone. Because, not no offense to all you strong climbers, I could care less you climb the hard problem. Same. You should be able to climb the hard problem because that's all you guys are doing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if you didn't climb the hard problem, I would actually... Now you know why I make fun of you, because I'm like, <laughs> here, jackass, this is actually easier than the problem I heard you did last week, and you can't do it. But when you're in a group of people and you walk up to that boulder problem, you'll notice there's always someone sitting back there that wouldn't even try the thing. And that person is the person I'm like, you should try it. And when they do one move, the excitement they get and the battle of just the one move, and then maybe 30 minutes later, next thing you know, they do it. That's what I love about climbing now. That's what's cool to me because honestly, all you strong kids are posers. You know, I think you're all posers. You should be doing those things posers. first try because that's all that matters. That's the sound bite that's going on Instagram. I think you're all posers. I think you're all posers because you should have done it first try. Because, I mean, it's only V12. You climb V15. First try would be more impressive. Yeah, yeah, you can try it 50 times and do it. That's great. But he did it on like 500th try, you know. I, but this person back here trying this V4, the hardest grade of their time, and freaking battling for it, and 100% doubt they can do this thing, and they do it. That's amazing. Yeah, that's I, what climbing is. I definitely resonate with the idea that 
anytime I say something positive, I also have to follow it with, you know, talking shit to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm, you know, I'm glad that climbing is still giving something to you. Right. That you're still getting something out of it because you put a lot into it, you know, from from just photos of you and videos of you getting people psyched to try their absolute hardest. Right. You know, when I'm, uh, as a Red River climber, I'm not good naturally at just trying really hard right off the ground, but I can think about a Stephen Jeffries video or photo and try to channel that same aggression into what I'm doing. From those days to root setting to developing boulders outside to helping create this really unique relationship with Joe's Valley climbers and Joe's Valley area locals. You've given a lot to the sport. So yeah. I'm glad it's still giving things to you. It, and it, it will, cause I'll always find what it does. And right now what's amazing. I don't show it cause I'm not soft. <laughs> if anyone thinks I'm soft, that's BS. I'm not soft, okay? But I don't want to show it. That you I'm, did join a trash cleanup here in Orangeville. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying. I'm not, I'm not soft. <laughs> Sometimes it appears that. But mm. when people come up to me and they thank me for all of the Joe stuff and trails and all that stuff, I may be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, kid. But deep down inside, I'm really proud of it. And I'm proud that these people are enjoying something that I luckily have the time to do for us all. Yeah. You know, makes your little heart grow two sizes too right, big. Right, right. Yeah. yeah that, that stuff is, it's, it makes you feel like it's worth it. And it, I like to deep down inside think that those people that really come up to me and say that and truly heartfelt mean it, they mean they would do it too. They just don't unfortunately have the time like I do. And sometimes they will. Someday they will. Right. You know? And there's they'll lots of ways to contribute. And I think you've shown that through the years too. So. Yeah. Simply they'll roll a little rock out of the trail when they're walking by. And that's that's tri- that's a contribute to helping. Yeah. I mean, they're not building miles of trail, but there's the little bits. And that now is, honestly, I'd rather build trails and fix landings than cold climbing right now in a way. <laughs> because it's it's I kind of a, has this feeling of accomplishment, just like summoning a, a root, a mountain, a boulder problem. It's this accomplishment, and it's a shareable one. Yeah, it's not a selfish. Oh, I climbed V15, and it's back to that care. same creation you were doing, setting boulders for people right. for the first time. You know, I never in my root setting days back then. I, I never set a root for me. I never set a boulder problem for me. It was always for. The customer base it was for my friends and they come in you could see they're having rough days at work and here they are climbing on my route and you can see their day change that's why i did it I, it's not to be i'm the cool guy i could care less because as i stated all you posers i don't want to be you <laughs> right i don't want to be the poser guy even though yeah yeah you're doing legendary stuff or whatever or you're climbing something hard you're still a poser you know <laughs> Well, dude, I I appreciate you sitting down. I know you get a lot of requests to do this and are reticent to talk sometimes. So, yeah, no worries, man. I appreciate it. No, it's good. It's it's nice to be able to be understood, to be perfectly honest. 
Stephen and I kept talking for another 20 minutes or so, and he told me all about the time when Ben Moon and Jerry Moffat showed up in Joe's Valley and Boone Speed called a young Stephen to come out and burn them off. But that's for another podcast series that I'm working on. So you'll have to wait for that audio. It'll come out eventually, likely uh, next spring. Steven, thanks for sitting down, telling some of your story, and thanks for all you do for Joe's and the climbing community at large. We appreciate you. Listeners, if you're headed to Joe's Valley, be sure to get Steven's guidebook through the Kaya app. I know I'm old and I love print guidebooks, but the app really is a forward-thinking way of engaging with these bouldering areas, and I'm glad Steven put it out there the way that he did. And if you want to try out that guidebook and decide for yourself whether you like that sort of format... Kaya is offering two weeks of Kaya Pro for free, which will get you that guidebook, advanced performance analytics, customized workouts, and more. You can do that through the Kaya app by using the code JV2WEEKS. That's JV2Weeks for two weeks of Kaya Pro for free. In your show notes, you'll find links to learn more about Steven, a link to the film The United States of Joe's that if you haven't seen already, you absolutely should. You'll also find links to the newly formed Joe's Valley Coalition. I joined it this year at the festival and was told I was the very first member. If you spend time there, I hope you'll join me. You'll also find a link to our big sale that's going on, so get in there, get your Christmas gifts together before it's too late. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron, buying a training plan or a course from the Power Company Climbing Academy, or simply by leaving us a review in your podcast app and telling a friend. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Power Company Climbing, but never, ever, particularly now that Elon is running the show, on the Twitters, because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time, this time, this time, this time, this time, this time,